I'm Jordan, and I once, once watched someone attempt to walk in text at the same time, and they walked into the side of a bus. Yeah, because if you hold something small up close enough to your face, it blinds you to everything else going on in the world. Here's what James is going to argue for us today, is that we're so focused on this tiny speck that we call a life that we can't see the rest of the world that is eternity around us. And because of the way that we're so focused on this life, we're blinded to the reality of what we're supposed to be living for. And so he's going to try and zoom out for us and get us to look out at eternity so that we can stop living like we're blind. That's what James is after this morning. And look, he's going to be blunt about it. All right, you probably learned this about James, uh, but he's going to walk up and slap the cell phone out of our hands, all right? And your temptation will be to be like, what's up? But he's going to look back at you and say, I don't want you to walk into a bus. He's trying to love you through harsh words because he wants you to live for what's real. And our section today is the end of chapter 4 into verse 5, and the context of this is from a couple weeks ago where he was talking about pride and humility. And so today, he's going to be talking about the pride of living a life focused on this world, which produces the universal and ridiculous human idea that we can function as God of our own lives. It's something that all of us are tempted towards and kind of run in the background of our own mentality without even recognizing it. We're assuming that we're in control of our own lives and can operate over our own lives as if we are God. And he's going to push back on that temptation in us to play God, specifically how we tend to play God with our planning and how we tend to play God with the way we use our wealth, our money. And he's going to contrast that with giving up on being God of your own life and patiently waiting for Jesus to return and to make life what it should be and, and being the type of person who refuses to give up even when this life disappoints. Anticipating his second coming and that creating steadfastness in us, anticipating another world so that we live trusting him in this one, that's humility. Humility. So comparing and contrasting that pride and humility. So he's going to start with the pride piece of that. And so that's where we're going to start, specifically the pride of our planning for our own lives. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So here's functionally what he's saying is that you should make a habit in your life of when you are making plans when you're anticipating the, the future, your future, you should make a habit of acknowledging the fact that you are not in control of any piece of that future. And you should do that by saying the phrase, if the Lord wills, I will do this or do that. 
And guys, this should, like, if we have missed this fact over the last stretch of life that we are not in control of anything, I don't know what it's going to take. Like, exhibit A, COVID, you can't predict anything. We, a, a little while ago, I, I remember when the week that uh, everything was shutting down, we were sitting in the building, Drew and I were, with our architects that we had a purchase agreement on. <laughs> That we were making plans for the future of what our church was going to be and then COVID hit and we walked out that day knowing probably that that was no longer the direction that God had for our church. In a second, he changed everything about the direction of our church and we believe that he's good in that. But what we learned is that we had zero control over our own plans. Now, what he's not arguing is that planning is a bad thing, but what he is arguing is that planning like you are God is a bad thing. <laughs> that it's not only a bad thing, but that it's evil. That's what he says. Because it's boasting. And that might seem kind of like, uh, like what, what does this matter? Do I just need to kind of tack the phrase, if the Lord wills on a stuff? Why is that such a big deal? It's such a big deal because it's arrogant to believe that you can control your life. And it's functionally rejecting the one who does. And so God is calling you back to your rightful place in the universe in submission to his plan and his will. And so this is, this is what we have to come to grips with. This is what I'm asking you to realize as a church. You are not in control of anything in your life. Let that sink in. You are not in control. And we're going to circle back to that with wealth. But for a lot of us, the idea that we're in control and can kind of plan out our lives the way that we want it to go is it gives us a sense of safety and security. But you attempting to operate as God over your own life is the most dangerous possible place that you could be. God is God. And you recognizing his will, his authority, and his control is safe, even if it's scary. And so don't boast, don't overestimate your own control of your own life, but instead acknowledge, can make it a habit to consistently acknowledge God's control in your life. All right, so that's the pride of planning. Now he's going to talk about the pride of riches or the pride of wealth. And I think you can break down this paragraph essentially into um, three categories. Playing God with your money by hoarding or through attempting control with your wealth. Playing God by trying to have power with your wealth. And then playing God through in, an indulgent lifestyle or through luxury. And look guys, in this, this paragraph about money, James sounds like an old school prophet. Okay? That, that's the type of preaching that he's doing here. And before we read this text, we need to ask the question, who does this paragraph land with in this room? Because there can be the tendency to take yourself out from underneath 
of this teaching on wealth, but the very fact that you live in America is likely evidence that this paragraph was written directly for you. This is essentially for everyone in this room, and even if it's not for you, even if you don't have some level of wealth at all, you still have been raised and you live in a culture that worships wealth, and so you've been formed by that ideology. Now, is money itself dangerous? Like, do rich people have a more difficult time uh, having a relationship with God than anybody else? Yes. See what I did there? It's not where you thought I was going. Um, the New Testament is very intense when it talks about money, in particular Jesus. Because he loves you. And he knows the deep tendency of money to convince you that you don't need God because you're sufficient. And he wants you to know what's true is that that money can't protect you. You need him. So let's look at these three categories, starting with hoarding wealth. James 5, 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, Eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So, this is talking about hoarding wealth. Their stuff is getting moth eaten because they've stockpiled it somewhere and haven't moved it around, it's just sitting somewhere trying to provide kind of a security blanket over life. If you're a retirement investor, your ears should be perking up right now. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with retirement, but I'm saying you will uniquely be tempted towards this. And essentially what these people were doing is they were building up stacks of wealth around their life as if it could be a wall to insulate them from the fear of this world. If they could just store up for themselves enough wealth, then they would be protected. But James is arguing that not only does it not provide protection, but it's actually doing the opposite. It's creating the destruction of their souls. Money gives you this sense that you are in control of your own life because you're prepared, but in reality, it's controlling you. It's trapping you. There's this um, idea of something called a, a monkey trap that I couldn't figure out for sure if this like, is real or works or if this is just like a parable, but either way, I think it still stands, okay? Uh, the idea is, you've maybe heard this before, that a monkey or some other animal, uh, like you put something shiny inside of like a log or a gourd or something like that, and they, they reach in and they clench their fist around that, that shiny thing, and then the hole is too small for them to be able to remove their fist out of it. And so clearly they would be able to solve this problem pretty easily by letting go of the thing they just grabbed onto and they could remove their arm and everything would be fine. But the idea is, is that they refuse to let go of that thing that they've just grabbed onto and because of it they're trapped and that they'll stay there even until they die. It is so easy to fall into that trap. 
where you're reaching for the security that wealth supposedly offers you and you're white-knuckling it and holding on to it and it begins to control you and trap you and remove your freedom from you. But instead of just letting go of it and saying, God, none of this is mine, it's yours, just do with it what you want, you, you just continue to hold it in your fist and you can't get out. And so you're not free because you're controlled by that money that you're holding on to. Guys, this, this one landed with me. Um, so I've been just trying to like adult more lately. I was adulting a little bit. I've been trying to adult more. Okay. And I tried to do all of it at once, which was a terrible idea. And I've stressed myself out and my family. Um, so I've been like studying, investing. I've been like working on getting more life insurance. I bought a van this weekend. I'm entering that phase in life. I'm just embracing it. I lost my image a while ago, so I'm just rolling with it. Um, but so I'm doing all of this at once. Um, and so I've been thinking about money a lot and been thinking about the future a lot and how to prepare for my future and my family's future. And this is what I've started to notice is I'm becoming a little bit obsessive about it. And, and that's, that, at least I thought that that wasn't my bent. I, I haven't traditionally thought that much about money and I think I like arrogantly assumed that that was godliness, but really it was just that I wasn't thinking that much about it. But once I started to think about it, all of this like greed and fear and desire for security started to like well up in me. And, I, and I'm just, I catch myself like thinking about it and getting nervous and analyzing and, and like thinking that I have to be perfect with it in order to provide for my future and the future of my family. And I kind of can, can kind of disguise that as trying to be a good steward, but actually it's just sin. And it's, it, it, like, in a few weeks, my obsession with wealth and security has reached out and, like, grabbed my heart. It, like, didn't take that long. And it's scary. Here, here's why. I, I read this quote in a commentary that I was reading. He said this. Hoarders brood over possible future catastrophes, but ignore the certain catastrophe of facing God's judgment without faith. That's what's trying to find security in wealth is, is you're ignoring the certain coming catastrophe of the judgment of God for these theoretical lesser catastrophes here. Give it up. Trust him. Trust him. That's the pride of hoarding wealth. Next, he talks about the pride of using wealth as a means of power or a way to demonstrate your power. James 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So this is speaking to people who are using their wealth as a means of exercising power over people. And so the context here is uh, there were wealthy landowners and there were these um, kind of day laborers that would do odd and end jobs for them. And these landowners were sort of working the system by either making the people work for them for a day and never paying them or paying them late so that they couldn't provide for that their family that evening. And so they were abusing their power. And the reason they were abusing their power is they knew they could get away with it. 
is because what they would do is they would use the court systems for their own benefit. And because they were well-connected, they knew they wouldn't be prosecuted for it. Um, That type of thing happened then. That type of thing happens now. And James says that that has no place in the kingdom of God or with people that claim the name of Christ. If you're in a, a place in your occupation or in your life where you affect the wages of employees, pay them well. Like pay people what they're worth. You're, you're a Christian. Don't, don't abuse that power. Use it to, to benefit and serve other people. Or maybe that's not your specific situation, but maybe you will be tempted to feel proud because of your means. Or to, to assess yourself with a certain sort of status Um, that is because of your socioeconomic status, but you want to claim it as moral. Don't be proud because of your wealth. And if if that is, is you, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, more of us would land in this camp than we want to admit. You need to hear this warning from God. Let me read it again. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, that's a very specific name for God. It's the name that the Bible talks about him as the ruler of angelic armies. This is Jesus on a horse with a sword. It's specifically picturing the warrior Jesus, and it's saying if you cut down the poor, Jesus will cut you down. And I want to talk to you for a second if you're on the kind of the other side of that reality, either in wealth or other forms of life, if, if you've been taken advantage of, if you've had power used against you, if you're a part of a, a race or, or a gender or a socioeconomic class that historically has been put down or oppressed, hear hear this encouragement from God. The people in power are not really in power. God is. And he hears you. He hears your cries. When you pray to him, he responds and he listens and he fights for you. And listen, he does not use his power against you. He's not trying to use you for his own benefit. He's trying to use his power and his status on your behalf to help you and to benefit you. That's the type of character that God has. He defends you. He fights for you. And he will fight for you if you trust him. And if you're in his people, if you're in Christ, he will fight for you for an eternity. Trust him. When you cry out, he hears your voice. And he will bring ultimate justice. That's what this text is talking about. The justice that we are unable to create on our own or even to fully understand what justice is. God knows exactly what justice is and how to create it in the world. And he will do that. And so when you're experiencing injustice, cry out to him and he will listen. And then you patiently wait. For him to respond. You patiently wait for God to bring ultimate justice that no human being can bring 
in and of ourselves. One of the commentators I was reading had, I think, a really insightful comment on this section from James. Um, he, he said that, that for James, the, the bigger picture that this whole text is under of the, the second coming of Jesus, the, of, of eternity, of all things, that that bigger picture of bigger spiritual realities of the coming judgment does not slow down social concern, but it enhances it in James's mind. It inspires it. And so, so I think there, there's something that, that I'm seeing happen in culture. And, and, and I mean, like, like in the church, in, in our culture, is that there, there's Christians who tend to be more on, on the social and political right that, that, will, that will emphasize the spiritual realities of the coming kingdom, which is beautiful and right and good, but will then use that to de-emphasize current social concern. And there's other Christians who lean more towards the political or social left that will emphasize current social concern, but in the process de-emphasize the, the, the bigger spiritual realities of which Scripture teaches constantly. And what James is saying here is he's saying those two things come together. Biblical Christianity is not one or the other, it's both. Social concern is inspired and driven by the greater reality of the coming kingdom of Jesus that we're asking him to bring here on earth. The third form of pride with wealth, the pride of luxury or self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Okay, this one lands with all of us. Like, there's no one in this room that doesn't know what it's like, including myself, that doesn't know what it's like to look at someone else's lifestyle and say, if I could just live like that, then I would be content, then I would be happy, then my life would be good. All of us have this dream of something that we don't yet have that we want in life, or maybe we've gotten everything that we want in life and we're consumed by that reality. We're, we're indulging ourselves in this life. We all understand that. And this is what James is saying, is that if you live like that, you are like a cow getting fattened up for the slaughter. You spend your life consuming, shoving whatever money and stuff you can into your life, and you're happy that you get to have whatever you want, you get to kind of eat whatever you want, not knowing that it's preparing you for judgment. That judgment is coming for a self-indulgent life. Listen, I know this is really difficult. Please hear James's heart in this. Please hear my heart in this. A desire for you to see something better than that reality. You cannot live a self-indulgent life like everyone else around you. You cannot pursue money and upward mobility in life and, and, and constantly increasing your standard of living like everyone else seems to be doing around you. You cannot justify lavish spending and lifestyle by comparing it with someone who has a slightly more lavish lifestyle than you or by calling it providing for your family. Jesus is coming back and nothing in this life will last. Worship him, not your money. Don't fatten yourself for the slaughter. 
Live for him. And please don't apply this text by saying, I just need to change my attitude a little bit towards money. No, no, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. So first you need to repent, turn from your sin that has made you offensive to God, ask him for forgiveness, which we'll see in a second he readily offers, repent, turn away from that, and then change your actions, change your life. Start giving your money to something beneficial for the kingdom. Because Jesus is coming back, have a budget meeting. Make different decisions and then actually do it. That's the pride piece. But then he takes a shift and he's going to begin to talk about the humility of patiently waiting for Jesus to come back. Patience in seeming insignificance and patience in suffering. So the paragraph or the couple paragraphs of verses 7 through 12 let me just unpack this, the structure of this because I think it's a little bit hard maybe to follow his train of thought and then we'll get into this. But, but if you could look at your Bibles with me if you, if you have them. Verses 7 and 8 are about patience. Patiently waiting for the coming of the Lord. Um, we'll get to that verse in a second. But then verse 9 um, is about taming the tongue. That common theme of James. Not grumbling against people in your life. So he goes patience, then taming the tongue, then he goes back to patience in verses 10 and 11, specifically through historic examples of steadfastness in the faith, waiting for Jesus to return. And then in verse 12, he's back to talking about taming the tongue, not lying, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, being a person of integrity, not only with what you do, but with what you say. Okay, so we've talked about taming the tongue a lot. We're going to focus in on the patience part of this section, starting with verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, did you notice how different this tone is? He's saying, be patient, what do you have to be patient for? Something that you're eagerly expecting. Before he was saying you genuinely should be terrified of the coming judgment if you're living in a certain way, if you're opposed to God. But now he's talking in this very different tone. Patiently wait for what you're eagerly des uh, desiring. He's calling you brothers. It's this, it's this softer tone. Now, now, why is that? Why is there this, this uh, clear distinction between these two sections in James? Well, I think it's because... Uh, the, the way we should think about judgment is entirely dependent on our relationship to the judge. So I've, I've, I've told this story before, but for, for you guys that are newer to Salt City, uh, this one's for you. Um, my mom, her name's Brenda, we call her B-Ren, um, but uh, she's amazing for a lot of reasons. One of the primary reasons is is because she is like, she's got like the fierce mama bear vibes, all right? You know what I'm talking about? And so I have this memory from when I was a kid that I had spent a long time building this snowman. And my mom and I were in the kitchen, and we watched this punk junior high kid walk past, kind of smile at his buddies, and just knock the head off of my snowman. And I looked up at my mom, and I saw the change happen. <laughs> and things just got very serious. 
and my mom ran out the door and I watched through the window as the kid took off and my mom chased him down. And so, like, in my little window frame a little bit later, here comes my mom pulling this kid by the arm. And I watched as this kid not only rebuilt my snowman, but built me a new and better one as my mom stood there watching him. Now, I love that story. That kid probably does not love telling that story. We experience the same event in two completely different ways. Why? Because of my relationship with my mom, I felt loved and protected by that fierce anger, but the kid that was opposing me and opposing her, he felt terrified, I guarantee you. That's what it's like with judgment. If you stand opposing God to his face by living differently than the way he's talked to you about living, you should be terrified. But if you submit to him and desire to follow him and you repent and ask him for forgiveness and the power to live differently, God is standing in front of you, protecting you from the world. And that fierceness of his anger feels beautiful and comforting to you, even if it is still like a little scary. And so the important question about the coming judgment of God, I think we tend to ask the wrong questions. The important question is not when he is coming back or how is he coming back, but are you prepared for him to come back? In other words, whose side are you on? Have you submitted to his lordship and is he standing in front of you protecting you or are you facing him, opposing him? And if you're standing behind him, waiting for him to protect you, this is what it looks like to continue to submit to his will, is that you patiently endure this life, even when it isn't what you expected. He gives several examples. One of them is of the farmer. It says the farmer plants a seed in the ground and then patiently waits for the harvest to come. In the Christian life, the seed being planted in the ground is conversion. The kingdom of Jesus is planted in your soul. And then the harvest is when you get to spend eternity with him forever, enjoying the good fruit of his kingdom. So what does that make this life? Waiting. Patiently waiting for the harvest. But here's what that means, is the vast majority of the Christian life feels like nothing is happening. The Christian life often is not epic. It, it, it's not this kind of amazing, dreamy life where you're doing these amazing things for the kingdom of Jesus. It just feels normal. In fact, it feels like nothing is happening. And this is what a Christian does, is you just keep showing up. You just show up to church for 50 years and you'll grow. You just show up in the morning to pray even when you don't feel like it because Jesus is alive. And even if you don't feel that, it's true. And so you just show up. You just keep showing up. You don't give up. You endure. And not only when life feels somewhat meaningless or insignificant, but when it's even worse. When, when trials come and when it feels like God is against you. And the case study of that, the example of that, is the story of Job. If you remember his story, he was this righteous and incredibly wealthy man who had everything in his life ruined in essentially an, in an instant. And he lost 
essentially everyone that he loves and everything that he owned. He got incredibly sick, had these boils on his skin, and he's sitting in the dust scratching himself. And his wife comes out and says, you should curse God and die. That's the story of Job. And the rest of the book is him wrestling with the suffering of life. And here in James... James says that Job is an example of steadfastness, which is so interesting because Job was very upset with God. He he was complaining to God. He was asking God essentially for his day in court where he could prove that he was righteous and hadn't done anything wrong. He's bickering with his friends. He's he's kind of dramatic and he's he's saying that he should just just die. It would have been better if he wouldn't have been born. And, And God looks at that wrestling and says, Job was steadfast. Why? Not because he was perfect or because he never doubted or because he was never afraid or never frustrated, but because he refused to curse God. In spite of his lack of understanding, he refused to turn from God and cursed him, and he continued to stay under God himself. That's what steadfastness looks like. And when it talks about the example of Job in the second half of verse 11, it says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Purpose of the Lord in the person of the Lord is how you remain steadfast. Quickly, the purpose of the Lord. He's reminding us of how the book began as he starts to bring the book to a close. And in James 1, it says that you should consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is the purpose of the Lord in your life. Complete. Can you imagine being whole? There will come a day in eternity where you will not even remember what it's like to want anything because you will have everything you ever could want or need or imagine. Wanting will be a foreign concept to you. Sin will be a foreign concept to you because you will be whole. And God will stop at nothing short of that. God will never look at your life and say, good enough. Because he wants you to experience the completeness of perfection. He will not stop until you share in his nature, is what First Peter talks about. That is his goal for your life, which means that you might have to walk through the pain and suffering and endurance of this life in order to be transformed into his image. And here's what James 11 calls that, a blessed life, because you get to see the purpose of God fulfilled in your life, and that is unquestionably worth walking through whatever you have to walk through now. And so stay with him and wait for him to come back and to make you into the fullness of the human being that he designed you to be. That's his purpose. And secondly, the person. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. God is not against you. He's for you. When life feels insignificant or worse, you will tend to think that God is against you. And when you feel hopeless, your tendency will be to give up on the only hope that you have. Don't do it. God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. How can you know that? Because of the evidence, the historical evidence of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in you that that is true and real and that he loves you. 
When, when the seeming facts stack up against you that God is not working in your life, you speak the facts of the resurrection back to them, and they outweigh any evidence that you possibly could come up with that God is not good. That is the ultimate act of compassion, mercy, and goodness and love towards you, and there is no seeming insignificance in life or suffering in life that could outweigh that compassion. And so you look back and you see his compassion and then you look forward on the life is coming that you haven't seen yet and you convince yourself that it's as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ that not only will he come back but that you will rise from death and everything will have been worth it. That is the Christian life. The other day I was, I was at a park and I was sitting by this pond. Pond is a little generous. Um, it's like a big puddle. And uh, there were trees, a big puddle with trees in it, okay? I was sitting there looking at it. I wanted it to be pretty, but it just wasn't. Everything's dead. It was kind of like gross. It just, it, it wasn't pretty. But then I got bored, and so I stood up, and I walked around it. And then I walked out, like, on these, uh, like, logs, kind of out into the middle of the pond. And I found this whole other, like, side of it that I didn't know about. And there was these ducks back there. And the, the, the sun was shining on it from a different perspective. And so it was reflecting off the water. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. The very same thing with a different perspective can go from ugly to beautiful. Your life can at times seem ugly. But the perspective of the purpose and the person of Jesus means that that ugliness can be turned into beauty in him. Because your suffering is not random and arbitrary, it's purposeful to transform you into the image of Jesus. And God is not mean to you, he's not uncaring, he's compassionate and merciful. So change your perspective and experience his beauty. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the hard warning in James. And we as a community come to you and we confess our sins and we repent. We do not want to be a church that is arrogant and thinks that we can plan our own life and we do not want to be a church that relies on money instead of you. And so God, change our minds about what's good and what's true. Change our minds about what's worth living for and help us to actually live differently. And thank you, Jesus, that you've given us the ability to be steadfast in you. That, that nothing can outweigh your goodness. That even when our lives feel insignificant, that we know it's worth it in you. And so, God, give us faith. Let us not give up on the hope that we have. We love you. Amen.